This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to the UCSF Mini Medical School series titled Family Health Practices for Well-Being During the Pandemic. My name is David Becker, and I'm the chair of this series of talks. I'm a clinical professor at the UCSF Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, and I'm the medical director of integrative medicine for our Center for Pain, Palliative, and Integrative Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics. In my practices and in teaching, I've seen the ripple effects that the stresses of the past year have had on kids and teens, their families, and the learners here at UCSF as well. And mine, I know, is only a small window into what the rest of the community has experienced. So when the Osher Center director, Dr. Shelley Adler, asked me if I would share a mini medical school on the theme of resilience during the pandemic, I jumped at it. The challenges of the last year have shaken up all of our lives, for many in serious life-altering ways and for others in ways that perhaps have the potential to shake us out of a complacency with the status quo of prior years. Whatever the challenges we each have faced for ourselves or bearing witness to it among family members and friends, we rely on a certain set of coping skills and tools that we've learned over our lives, both conscious and less so, some supporting our resilience and some less healthy ones with the potential to be self-destructive. Our popular culture these days is currently awash in, and some might even say infatuated with this notion of wellness. We're often presented with these idyllic images of glorious peace that comes with learning how to meditate, or an expectation that we should be thriving in the face of any challenge if we could just learn to be resilient. But beneath much of that hype, and its associated hope for quick answers and easy fixes are years of research that have helped us better understand what it actually means to be resilient. That cultivating emotional balance means getting familiar with what it feels like to be out of balance. And why also is it so important not to neglect the body's sensory experience in the process of learning, perhaps in more abstract ways, how to be more mindful in our daily lives. The speakers over the next several weeks will be addressing many of these themes in their talks. And it's really been my pleasure to put this series together of uh, talks from highly accomplished colleagues and friends, both at UCSF and in the community to share their expertise with you. Each of the speakers in the series has the kind of breadth and depth of expertise that I hope will not only capture your attention, but also provide valuable perspectives and tools for building that sometimes elusive sense of resilience in the face of challenges that we can't always control. I'm really looking forward to learning alongside with you. And with that, I'd like to introduce our first speaker tonight, Dr. Bob Hendren. We couldn't have a more accomplished leader to kick off the series than Dr. Hendren. Dr. Hendren's a professor of psychiatry and behavioral science in the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. He's co-director of the UCSF Dyslexia Center director of the Program for Research in Neurodevelopmental and Translational Outcomes, and an attending psychiatrist in the Center for Autism and Neurodevelopmental Disorders in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences here at UCSF. Dr. Hendren is past president of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. 
He's published well over 150 scientific papers and five books and has been listed in the Best Doctors of America annually since 1996. His current areas of research and publication interests are translational interventional outcomes research, including clinical pharmacology, nutraceutical and nutritional trials using biomarkers to enhance resilience in neurodevelopmental disorders. He's been the principal investigator on over 40 industry, NIH, and foundation-sponsored clinical trials, and we're lucky to have him kick us off. Thanks, David, for that warm introduction. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here and to be part of this Osher Center Mini Medical School. Um, I'm going to be talking about neurodevelopmental resilience, thinking about the way our brain develops, our nervous system, our bodies. And I'm going to talk about disorders that include things like autism or dyslexia or ADHD or learning difficulties, uh, a variety of others, um, and, and describe ways that I think we can try to build resilience, try to help the body become healthier. And I'll tell you about that as we go through this in a, ver in a variety of ways. So I hope some of you have some questions uh, or you want to um, share some of your own expertise or your own understanding of this as we go through it. Uh, I think that's part of what makes it all fun. Important, uh, at least in many of the talks I give, that you know who supports me that might influence my talks. I have grants from the people that you see up there and some of the interventions that I talk about will be related to them. Uh, a pancreatic digestive enzyme for Curemark, a couple of things with Roche and uh, vasopressin, Otsuka, uh, and NIH. And then I'm on advisory boards and other related kinds of places and I publish and get royalties for doing that. So when David was introducing me, he mentioned our center, which are our research center, which is called Pronto, the Program for Research on Neurodevelopmental and Translational Outcomes. And what we really like to think we're doing and what we try to, 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 to work on as hard as we can to think about how this can happen is to build resilience in children with or at risk of neurodevelopmental disorders and using things like biomedical grants, which she'll tell you some about. We'll also describe a little bit of grit and resilience and how those might be in, enhanced. And then to look at the real, them in real world settings like schools, we work in four different schools. We work in one school for children with autism that's called Oak Hill School in San Anselmo. We also work in three schools for kids with dyslexia, Charles Armstrong School, Athena Academy, and Chartwell. And we measure outcomes. And, and I'll tell you some about our work that we do in those schools. There, this is our team um, that work in various aspects of what we're doing, and um, we work with several other teams as well, and I'll tell you about some of those as we go through it. Resilience, as I think probably everybody knows, is the capacity to adapt successfully to challenges. And it's so important to think in terms not only of disorders or things that aren't working well, but to try to look at resilience and say, how can we build it? How can we make the body do better? 
It's a dynamic, it's generated through a bunch of interactions that we have with multiple systems. And all of those can work together to help us be more or less resilient. There are things that we can think of quickly, and I'll tell you more about as we go through, that are kind of neuroscience-based ways of building resilience. Things like improving executive functions, the way that we can focus and concentrate and use our front of our brain to think. Inhibitory control, how we don't always act on every impulse and planning and then our problem solving skills and the way we regulate our emotions and our attentional capacities. All of those are things that we may do particularly well, or we may have difficulty with perhaps because of the way our neurodevelopmental system has developed. And perhaps we can think about ways of building resilience So those things work better, and we'll talk about that as we go through this. I think people recognize that for many neurodevelopmental disorders, we seem to be seeing more of them. That's particularly so for autism, and these these, uh, graphs aren't the best. uh, They weren't what I imagined would be the best, but they were the best I could find. And you can see that autism is growing up, and I'll show you another one next that does that even better. ADHD seems to be going up. Learning disorders, and at least this, don't seem to be going up, but some more recent studies suggest that they are, whereas intellectual disability, for the most part, tends to be going down. For autism, though, we know that there's just been a a dramatic increase in the prevalence. And if we look at it over the years from 1975 until the most recent study that the CDC gave, you can see that it's gone to now to 1 in 54 young people uh, are, are diagnosed with autism. And that could be the whole spectrum from people that are actually doing very well, maybe going to college, maybe in graduate school, uh, but have the features to diagnose autism. To, but it also includes kids with fairly severe autism, kids with no eye contact and hand flapping and and have a difficult time regulating things. But we've seen more of that. We'd say, why? Why are we seeing more of it? Well, an explanation that people often give is it's diagnostic expansion, better reporting, increased recognition, and then even increasing acceptability that many families that we see come in hoping for a diagnosis of a neurodevelopmental disorder because it then qualifies them to receive services in the school or from their insurance company or others that'll help their kids do better. May even be that places that measure how many neurodevelopmental disorders we have also provide more services. So people move there and then they get recognized as having those difficulties. The Studies that have looked at these factors say that that maybe works for about half of the increase that we've seen, but there's another half that doesn't get explained, and especially if we talk about more severe disorders where it wasn't like we could have not recognized them before or they weren't impairing in a way that that wouldn't be worthy of of looking at, and we're just now seeing that so The other things that people put forth as explanations are 
Perhaps it's due to environmental toxins, to infectious or immune vulnerability, and to what we'll describe more in a couple slides, epigenetic processes. So it's this kind of interaction of a genetic vulnerability that the neurodevelopmental disorders we find do have a, a genetic component, although they're not 100% genetic. And it seems that there is an interaction of that vulnerability with a kind of second hit, an environmental stressor, and an interaction between the two. So if you live near um, a freeway where there's a lot of diesel admission, you're more likely to have children with neurodevelopmental disorders. If you live near a field where pesticides are played, are sprayed, you're more likely to have children with neurodevelopmental disorders. And those studies have been shown again and again, and there are many, many more that I could go through listing, that say there's something in the environment that works with a genetic vulnerability to create this neurodevelopmental disorder. But the third kind of blow comes if we say there's nothing we can do about it. That it's, if it's just a genetic disorder, you can't re-engineer people's genes. But if you say there's that second hit, there's something in the environment, then you can say, well, could we improve the environment? And that's awfully difficult to do. Or could we improve the organism's ability to be resilient, to push back, to not get off track in the direction that they're developing. And for certain disorders too, it's important that these kids get to be with other kids that may be more typically developing so that they can learn from them rather than be put just with other kids that have something just like what they have. So as I started thinking about how do kids grow healthy brains, I, um, was visiting France. My wife is from France and both of our daughters um, have speak fluent French and, and English and both of them actually have married French guys. So the youngest daughter married someone from Alsace and you might recall Alsace-Lorraine was this area where a glacier came down kind of between France and Germany and it scraped that area out and he, he and his family said, why don't you come and visit us in Alsace? And we did. And they said, well, maybe you'd like to go to some wineries. And I said, well, that sounds fun. I'd like to do that. Uh, and as we went to the different wineries, they all talked about their terroir, their land, the way that their land and the things that were in the land were what accounted for the wonderful grapes that they had. And it was the amount of so the amount of sand or the amount of clay or the amount of other kinds of things that were left when this glacier came through that create these different soil types. And, but as they described it, they said, it wasn't, it's not just that. It's not just the soil. It's also the amount of sunshine and the amount of rain and how that works. But it's not just that. It's also the souls of the people that are tilling the soil and making that, that make our terroir, our grapes, so wonderful. And I thought, well, you know, that's kind of the way kids grow healthy brains. They, they have this DNA, the genetic underpinning, 
but it all gets kind of translated through and then it appears as symptoms on the surface of the earth. But they're all interacting. There was a, a psychologist that I worked with who I made a comment that, you know, the problem, Sally, in some of your treatments is you're just working on the surface of the earth. We need to work deeper. We need to work in the middle. And she said, oh, no, Bob, you're wrong. If I get these kids young enough and I can do the right things, I can re-sculpt their neurons. I can make a difference all the way down. And she was right. And that's why I put those little arrows in there saying, we're not just working on the surface of the earth with those things. But as we're trying to think about how to make this soil healthier, we need to think about these middle layers, the layers two and three. So layer four might be behavioral kinds of interventions, the surface of the earth. Three and four might be speech and language and CBT. Two and three might be medications. Layer two, though, is what we sometimes refer to as biomedical or epigenetic. And we're going to talk the majority of the talk about that for the rest of our time to say it's making that as healthy and as resilient as we possibly can that can make good grapes, that can help good help kids grow resilient, healthy brains. And of course, there's gene modification, but I, I think most people are not fully ready for that yet. And I think there are ways that we can do it through gene expression rather than actually altering the genes themselves. So I'm going to start by talking about what could we do to reduce the risk that we might have a child with a neurodevelopmental disorder? How could we try and help kids from the time that they're conceived and even before they're conceived to do the best job of having healthy bodies and healthy brains? The, uh, what we're talking about and doing that is in thinking about this epigenetic process, the part that goes from the DNA through methylation and chromatin patterning and histone acetylation to a series of other things that we'll talk about in a few minutes, about things like oxidative stress or immune function. And as we think about that, that begins really from the moment well, not just from the moment of conception, from the health of the mom and the dad and the environment that they're in, in terms of how they're going to start then that little fetus growing a body and a brain. We know as we look at these epigenetic effects that they can happen now, but they can also affect your whole lifetime. And they can even be something that's passed on like genes are from previous generations. We did a search, uh, a, a way that we can look at uh, all the different factors that have been published in medical articles to say how many of them related to perinatal factors that were related to autism, neurodevelopmental disorders, risk factors such as infections, medications, environmental factors, chemical and nutritional factors. And then we searched for interventions that might improve those outcomes, including things like nutritional supplements during pregnancy, breastfeeding, and postpartum stress reduction. 
what we found was what other people have found in smaller studies is that there are individual components for improving pregnancy outcomes. And there are several uncontrolled preconception to infancy medical practices that suggest there might be multiple interventions that improve the outcomes in pregnancies. And I'll tell you more about those. The first talks about risk for pregnancy uh, in, that, that happens when someone's pregnant. So we know things like maternal infection and inflammation, like congenital rubella, has a higher instance of people who have neurodevelopmental disorders if they were conceived and carried while their mom had those things. Things too, like environmental toxicants, like methylmercury and PCBs. And then air pollution, I had mentioned before, and pesticides, but also that bisphenols and phthalates that are sometimes put in plastic containers or put in side thermos bottles. Valproic acid is one that we know has a, a high incidence of neurodevelopmental disorders in outcomes. Thalidomide, you might remember, was a, something that helped with anxiety and morning sickness given to pregnant mothers who developed little kids that had flipper-like arms and short legs. Um, but if they took thalidomide in the second trimester of pregnancy, they had a higher incidence of neurodevelopmental disorders. There's been controversy about whether SSRIs are related to neurodevelopmental disorders. And you'll read studies that go most, both ways. But for the most part, they weigh a little heavier on that they don't. There have been studies suggesting acetaminophen taken, especially if it's taken regularly during pregnancy, is associated with a higher incidence of um, neurodevelopmental disorders, and the same with heavy metals. The, there was an interesting study of OB-GYN practitioners who were counseling pregnant moms, uh, and, and they asked them, how many of you believe that these kinds of things make a difference in how, you know, the child develops, uh, whether they have a neurodevelopmental risk. And more, more than 80% said they thought it did. And then they said, well, how many of you counsel pregnant moms about these factors so that they might, if they're going to work, find out are there environmental toxins around where they're working or is the place that they're living in the safest that could be? And it was only like 20% who did. And they asked them, why didn't you tell these parents, potential parents? Uh, and they said, because we didn't want to unduly worry them. Well, I think it helps to think about how to, how to educate people about those kinds of healthy behaviors that can make a difference. But we can maybe also think about things that build the body's resilience. There have been good studies many times showing that uh, folic acid or folinic acid and multiple vitamin supplements before and during pregnancy had a reduced risk of autism, a reduced risk we're finding increasingly for a whole bunch of other disorders as well. Same for omega-3s, vitamin D, antioxidants, especially for older moms who might be iron deficient. Iron makes a big difference, iron supplementation for uh, the, the brain health of their offspring. 
choline has been more associated with kids that might develop psychotic disorders, but also with other kinds of neurodevelopmental disorders. There's a developmental pediatrician who has a practice filled mostly with kids who have a neurodevelopmental disorder, mostly autism. And out of her 294 patients that she had and followed, she found that lots of the parents would come in and say, you know, we have one child with autism. We'd like to have another child. What can we do to help us with that? And what she did in her practice was to minimize toxicant exposure, maximize breastfeeding, use probiotics, nutritional counseling. And this wasn't anything like the case in gluten-free diet. It was just eating good, good, good eating habits. She limited antibiotics, except when they were absolutely necessary, and she minimized acetaminophen use. And out of all of those cases, and this slide was 2005 to 2013, she had zero new cases of autism. When we know that the incidence of siblings siblings gets sometimes up to as high as 18%. So it was a small study. It was uncontrolled. She didn't publish it in, you know, the New England Journal of Medicine, but it was an interesting kind of practice-based study. And there have been others that have done things like that and show the benefits. So I'm going to shift from this perinatal period now to talk about just neurodevelopmental resilience with different kinds of interventions, mostly supplements, some that are medications that might improve those factors that we've been talking about that, um, you know, might have a role for neurodevelopment. But I'm going to start by talking about a study that we've been doing at our dyslexia center. And that's looking at these three schools I mentioned and trying to see, could we better understand their neurodevelopmental disorder, the, the dyslexia that they have. And Marilu Gorner-Tempini, who's a neurologist that leads the phenotyping project, um, has a neuroscience-based evaluation that helps subtype these kids. And then we have an outcome project at the school. We do these together. She and I co-direct the center at schools looking at other kinds of emotional factors and academic factors that we hope we can improve by better understanding their phenotype. We know that reading is a complex thing to learn to do. It's not just one thing like, you know, uh, running or the muscle groups that are involved with that. It's there are all these different parts of the brain that go from the back to the dorsal to the parietal temporal area into the frontal lobes. And all of those need to be coordinated in order for somebody to learn how to both understand the form, the sound, the all the different things that go into reading. And while we used to think, or we maybe didn't even fully recognize dyslexia until maybe 20 or 30 years ago, we're now recognizing that there may be different ways that people get there into where they're, they're having difficulties with, with learning to read. And they, that may show up early on, even in their acquisition of language, uh, but it shows up 
when they get into school and they're not learning to read. One of the studies that, that Dr. Gorna Tempini did looked at different kids from the same school, all diagnosed with dyslexia, and then looked at different aspects of their, the way their, um, they were cognitively functioning. And these are three different kids and look at how different each of those bar graphs are in terms. So for nonverbal reasoning, they were smart. They did, they were all smart and all in a similar area, but for their ability to use phonics and phonology to, to put loop words together, to hold words in mind, to retrieve words, to thinking about the visual spatial part of what it takes to read and then social emotional factors these three kids were very, very different, but they all had the diagnosis of dyslexia. So even looking at MRI, at um, uh, spectroscopy, we can see that the pathways for these kids were quite different, the three that we just saw, and the way that they, you can see, look, look left to right, look at different colors, and you can see how each of them had different pathways that were stronger and weaker uh, for each of those kids. So we hope that by identifying these things, that teachers can do a better, more targeted way of teaching, and that this isn't relevant only for dyslexia. It's relevant for all learners. We all learn some things uh, in some ways easier than other people and in some ways harder. And if we can figure out how to, to target those, we can make us all more resilient. We're measuring outcomes in these kids as well. And it won't be surprising to you to learn that most of these kids that are in a school for dyslexia that have been in a, a regular uh, public school uh, or a, a just a regular, even private school, come to the school feeling traumatized. They feel bad about not being able to read. They try to hide it. Sometimes you might have heard Gavin Newsom tell the story of his own dyslexia and how he used to go home at night and practice. If he was going to have to read something in front of the kids the next day, He'd do it over and over again with his mom so that he could memorize it. So he'd go in and look at the book, but he wasn't reading the book. He was doing what he had memorized. There are ways that people try to cover up that difficulty reading because it's so hard. And they often come into the school feeling really anxious and that affects their academic performance. So in the studies that we did, we found anxiety was significantly associated with academic performance and that it was it happened regardless of age or sex or whether or not they had ADHD or not so the higher anxiety had poor academic performance and as a child's anxiety increased their academic performance decreased and vice versa so as the kids were at the school longer and did better those that did the best, their anxiety became more manageable and their academic performance came better. We also looked at grit and resilience. And we found that those kids come in and their grit and resilience improves as they're in the school. 
that it's associated with outcomes for reading disorder. And the more grit and resilience you have, the better your reading disorder outcome is. And it happens regardless of age or sex. We found that those who had higher grit and resilience also had lower anxiety, depression, had better academic performance and better quality of life. And as grit and resilience increase, their anxiety decreases, their depression decreases, their academic performance improves, and so does their quality of life. Both of these papers have been accepted for publication, but I don't list the publication yet because they haven't been published. And we think, well, how can we improve grit and resilience? And this, this one isn't our study, but it's one that I have some involvement with, and so I feel okay about telling you about, and it's an Osher Center study that looks at this Terra program in teaching uh, mindfulness meditation. And in their grant, they're looking at, at uh, people that are having trouble with depression and showing how it might improve their depression. But what we've been interested in doing is saying, could we do something like this Terra model um, meditation and could that improve grit and resilience in kids that could help them do better in schools? Whether they had dyslexia or whether they just weren't performing well or whether they just had anxiety, what could we do to help that go better for them? So now I'm going to shift in kind of the latter half of this talk and talk about some of the biomedical interventions, some of the things that we consider might be helpful. They're sometimes referred to as complementary and alternative medicine or complementary and integrative medicine. And I think people at the Osher Center would much prefer the Kim as I would as well. And some people like biomedical, but thinking about those for things like autism, things like ADHD, there's even been a few, one or two studies done for dyslexia several for depression, several for anxiety. But people, especially for younger kids, are really interested in thinking about these treatments. They think of them as not being part of conventional medicine. <clears throat> they think that the, um, the things like taking supplements, multiple vitamins, vitamin D, omega-3 probiotics, and magnesium as the most prevalent ones, and they say the main reason in surveys that they've chose that is related to concerns about safety and adverse effects from prescribed medications. But what too often happens, and the Osher Center has in a sense solved, is that often parents go to one set of doctors or practitioners for these more alternative, as they're called, interventions, and then they go to another set of more traditional doctors for their traditional interventions. And they don't tell either one what they're doing because they feel the traditional doc will say, you don't want to do that. That stuff's no good. Or they say, that doc's not very knowledgeable. He doesn't know much about this anyway. Why should I ask him? And then the more alternative docs, especially those out on the extreme, will say, no, no, you don't want to do that traditional stuff. This is what really works well. And I think the Osher Center has solved it because they have good docs that know um, the, the full gamut of medicine, but they're working in this more holistic way 
to make a difference. And, and I hope that that's the way all docs become as time moves ahead. What all of it means though, is that we're kind of having a paradigm shift. We're beginning to think differently about medicine. And it's not just in mental health or in the disorders I've been talking about. It's the same in cancer. It's the same in vascular disease. It's the same in all of our disorders. And we're beginning to think of them as whole body disorders. And we're beginning to think of processes that affect the whole body. And we're trying to improve resilience and improve health. It's back to those epigenetic processes again that I had mentioned early that talk about the phenotype, that's the outside, that's the surface of the earth. The genetics, that's the, the center of the earth. But the epigenetics is this part that gets influenced by the environment and that we can see the way those things can change and then potentially be reversible or even preventable. Those are the processes we're talking about are things like immune abnormalities and inflammation, oxidative stress, disturbed methylation, mitochondrial dysfunction. Mitochondria are the little energy bunnies in your cells that drive things forward. For free fatty acid metabolism, excitatory inhibitory balance, hormonal effects, and microglia. We'll talk a little about all of those. There's, it's a whole, uh, it, it would be days and days of talking about all the interventions and all the things that have been involved in doing this. But I'm going to just hit on a few, especially those that seem to work the best. This new paradigm, in some ways, is saying that. Many people with neurodevelopmental disorders, but also with depression, with other kinds of, uh, of medical difficulties can have intestinal inflammation, digestive enzyme abnormalities, metabolic impairments, all of those things that we've been talking about. And in many cases, we can improve the symptoms of that that outside disorder, the neurodevelopmental disorder, through things like nutritional recommendations, prescription medications, and then addressing the underlying medical conditions and trying to make people more resilient and healthy in all those ways. There are a lot of things out there, and there aren't a lot of good studies, unfortunately, and I'll tell you why in just a minute, why we don't, why it's very hard to do good studies. But when you look at the, the different treatments that have evidence. There is good evidence for things like melatonin, omega-3, vitamin D, and N-acetylcysteine. There's kind of evidence for methyl B12 and vitamin and mineral supplements. And then there's more anecdotal evidence for things like diet, the microbiome, digestive enzymes, CBD and THC, and probiotics. But those are all things that people in their practices consider using, but with various amount of evidence. Ones that just haven't worked and yet, you know, came with a great deal of fanfare. People were very excited about them and thought they'd work. First was chelation. There's still people that do chelation and believe that it works, but there's just been no real evidence that it works for these disorders. Hyperbaric oxygen treatment. Uh, again, not good evidence. Few studies that were negative, few studies that were a little bit positive, but they weren't randomized or controlled. 
So for the most part, we can't speak of that. IVIG, some people use that for immune abnormalities, but for these mental disorders that we're talking about, there's not good evidence. Secretin affected the pancreas, affects the pancreas, and people thought it was going to make a difference. It didn't. Mementine is a uh, an agent that's used for Alzheimer's, uh, Namenda, and uh, the Roche or, or um, Forest Labs invested a fortune in trying to show that this could work for neurodevelopmental disorders, and they all failed, and and they had to sell their company. Our baclofen was a GABA agent that was developed by Seaside Therapeutics, who also had a negative trial and has since gone bankrupt. And vasopressin is related to oxytocin. And Roche just ended their trials that had looked very promising. And some people benefited from, but not enough for them to get an indication. The problem with doing these, this research is that the kinds of changes that you see are slow, steady changes. They don't happen all at once. So you don't have a big, what's called effect size. If you give somebody a stimulant medication for ADHD, or you give somebody an antibiotic for pneumonia, it gets way better and you can see a big effect size. So you can tell that right away. But for these, it's a change that comes over time. There's also a lot of heterogeneity in the disorders that we're talking about. You have to do a trial for a long time, and then you have to try and hold everything else steady. You need, it would be good to have a biomarker for inclusion. So you could say on that list of things like immune function or excitatory inhibitory, what are we targeting? And if we think that's what we're targeting, could we select based on that rather than take all, com all comers? Blinding, it's often hard to not know what's the active and not the active. There's variations in the formulation and the IRB has issues and there are ethical issues. And one of the biggest is that many of these medications, these supplements are not going to lead to a trial that could make enough money for a drug company to pay back what it costs to do that. So drug companies aren't interested in doing these studies because they, they don't, because of all these issues, it makes it complicated. We target different mechanisms and just some of the things that we could say, melatonin seems to help with immune and inflammatory processes, IVIG, corticosteroids. You can see on those, in those parentheses, what's the level of evidence for those in helping with neurodevelopmental disorders? And you can see most of them, it's not real good. Vitamin D at the bottom gets a grade B or moderate and something that could be recommended, but it's not like grade A, which is randomized, more than one randomized control trial. And then mitochondrial function, carnitine, CoQ10, L-carnosine. Again, there's some evidence, but not strong evidence from what in medicine we consider the gold standard, which is a randomized control trial. So it doesn't mean they don't work. It just means we haven't been able to show in the, to the kind of evidence that would have the FDA give an indication for that kind of an intervention and say, let's try it. So melatonin, people 
sometimes say melatonin doesn't work that great for disorders other than neurodevelopmental disorders, but there have been study after study that would indicate melatonin really works for kids that have, for most kids that have neurodevelopmental disorders. And that can be anywhere from three to nine or 10 milligrams of melatonin uh, taken at bedtime. And there's a controlled release melatonin now because melatonin helps you fall asleep, but it doesn't help you stay asleep. So the controlled release gradually decreases the amount of melatonin and helps kids sleep through the night better. Vitamin D, there's ecological evidence like people who live in climates that um, don't have much sunlight and have darker skin to get the sunlight in tend to have more neurodevelopmental disorders than people that um, that live in places where there's a lot of sunlight. Uh, there were there's been one good study and actually probably several several more uh, by now that would indicate vitamin D at two thousand to five thousand international units makes a difference. Um, <clears throat> Uh, in how kids with neurodevelopmental disorders do. Thinking about other clusters around oxidative stress, glutathione, methyl B12, curcumin. Curcumin is what comes in Indian food. And it seems to be also an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant. And acetylcysteine. And again, you can see the evidence for those neurotransmitters that you might affect. Uh, tetrahydrobiopterin for a while was thought to maybe work well, but had a negative trial. GABA, I mentioned arbaclofen, vimetanide is a diuretic that's been recently showing modest benefit. Glutamate also is, has been targeted and shows some benefits. When I was, uh, one of my past lives or my past jobs was uh, to be the executive director of a place called the Mind Institute that's at UC Davis. Um, when I first came there, they asked me if I would be the executive director and was founded by parents, uh, four, five really um, thoughtful families who raised over a hundred million dollars um, to build a wonderful center and to do a lot. And, at the, at the beginning, when we were just starting to build this center, the parents interviewed me and we said, you, they said, you know, we'd, we'd like you to leave no stone unturned about what might cause faulty neurodevelopment or autism. We want you to do good science, but keep an open mind. So the first study, when I asked people, what could I do? They said, try methyl B12. We did a study of methyl B12. and second kid in our study came in and it was as though this veil had been lifted. It was, I mean, he wasn't cured by any means, but he, he was looking at me for the first time. And I said to his parents, does he seem different to you? And they said, almost with tears, they said, he feels so different. He's looking at me now in a way that he didn't, he's more interactive. The boy still has autism. He's a young man now. But, but he did much, much better with something that improved this oxidative stress. And we did measures of oxidative stress and showed that those who had the most of it and at the beginning and the least at the end were the ones that did the best. Antonio Hardin at Stanford did a study of N-acetylcysteine, and there have been several done since 
and they all haven't been 100% positive. But he found in his study that it, it did really help kids with irritability. And it's been shown to be a benefit also for kids with repetitive behaviors and with self-injurious behaviors. Then there are lots of uh, amino acids, nutrients, putting things together, and you can see the list and the and how they're working. And then there's increasing interest in the microbiome, looking at probiotics, pancreatic digestive enzymes. And in, among vitamins, folic acid is one that's been shown to improve language in kids with neurodevelopmental disorders, especially if they're folate receptor alpha autoantibody was low and not working as well, and it was boosted in this process. There have also um, been others looking at the GI tract that we uh, that I alluded to earlier, using probiotics. Um, and recently, there's been interest in what's called microbiota transfer therapy, where you use someone's feces that's been sterilized and purified and put into a pill and then put in either some people swallow it, but the most effective seems to be to put it in as a suppository. And there's a group in Arizona that's shown now in three studies that it seems to make a difference. And there are um, if one wanted to find it in the U.S., it'd be hard, but it's available in Australia. And I've had some patients go there for that. And I've had equivocal results. Some people saying it makes things better, some not. But it's saying that it's incre- uh, changing the microbiome in these kids with autism and making them healthier. And there's a new study starting looking at a at a at something that coats these large uh protein molecules that irritate the gut's lining to see if that doesn't help as well. And preliminary studies suggest that it does. Pancreatic digestive enzymes help break down these large proteins. And uh, a biomarker for whether that works or not is what's called fecal chymotrypsin. The randomized control trial has been completed, not published, and they've been in front of the FDA for a while. And so it's hard to know what's going to happen, but I think that it's thought that the results tend to affect core features of neurodevelopmental disorders and that it has a strong place. But I think the FDA hasn't been easily convinced, I guess. And then there are other things that we haven't studied well, but medical marijuana, THC and CBD, we're just starting a trial of a CBD compound that's done by a company that makes it very thoughtfully and, you know, that it's put together well and there's a rationale for the way that it affects the endocannabinoid system. And I think what many of us have a hard time with is someone comes in saying, well, what about using CBD or CBD with a little bit of THC? that I can get at the formulary for my child with anxiety or my child that has trouble sleeping or my child that has aggressive outbursts. And we don't really have the studies to say how safe is it? How is it put together so that we know we can count on it? And so I don't know how to recommend dosing, but I'm not opposed to people going and trying it. And I find 
maybe about half of the people that do say that it makes some difference. And then there have been a few that say it makes a lot of difference, but I'd say another half that say it doesn't make enough difference that they continue using it. But that's just my sample and that's not very good uh, science. But it's still something because of our understanding now of the endocannabinoid system that makes some sense. And I think Johnson and Johnson is also doing a study of some agent related to this as well. GABA-A is, we keep trying to find something with GABA, which kind of calms down the, the nervous system and seems to be health promoting. Um, there is a compound, a couple that are, people are thinking about using for studies and then vitamins and minerals and thinking about different ways of putting them together. So in the next few minutes, as I kind of wind up, I want to tell you just a little about Oak Hill School, where we do our research. It's in San Anselmo in a nice little valley. And we've been using a model that we would call as a medical home where we work with the docs that see these kids. I see the kids for their treatment. We are working to try and enhance their biomedical resilience with a whole variety of interventions that make a difference that include a thoughtful uh, relationship-based approach with the kids, uh, classrooms that are well done. But we also think about doing biomedical interventions. And one that we did that I thought was kind of interesting was looking at sulforaphane, which is a really concentrated broccoli sprout extract that was initially developed to treat uh, oxidative stress and cancer. And then somebody noticed that it seemed to affect heat shock protein. And then somebody said, you know, kids with autism sometimes are particularly inclined to um, do better during fevers. So maybe heat shock protein is relevant there. And we used urinary metabolomics to look at the outcomes. And in these kids, those that um, that had the most disturbed urinary metabolites at the beginning and the most healthy at the end were the ones that did the best. And their scores improved, and we published that. But we saw improvements in things like oxidative stress, amino acid, gut microbiome. But the one that was really interesting was sphingomyelin, which has some to do with white matter coating on on different things. So we felt that improved and showed a benefit. So I'm on my last three slides, I think. So if you have questions, I hope you'll think of them. And Dr. Becker is going to uh, help uh, see if there's any to ask, but we'll be open to a more open conversation about any of this. But you heard my allusion to the methyl B12. I think for kids with neurodevelopmental disorders, sometimes we see the disorder more than we see the kid. It's as though there's a veil over the kid. And we see that, especially with something like autism, where you see kids with severe autism, that, you know, it's just hard to not see that. Except as you get to know them, you find that there's this kid underneath. And as you begin to lift that veil, you see more and more of the kid. And I hope that as we think about building resilience, we hope about helping the body be healthier, that we're lifting the veil of neurodevelopmental disorders. 
We're doing that with medical, like genetic, neurology, GI, other medical symptoms and treating them. With ancillary services like meditation, speech and OT, behavioral interventions, and then associated symptoms with pharmacology, and then biomedical assessments and treatments. Although what I still feel is the very most important is personal relationships and resilience, which are just the most important part of what we can do to help people with anything or with uh, of, of uh, neurotypical anybody. There's just nothing kind of more important than that is personal relationships and resilience. When the Mind Institute was being thought of to be built, they had an art contest. We had an art contest and people from all over the world submitted their um, uh, work that they have done, paintings, uh, sketches, a variety of things. You had to have a neurodevelopmental disorder to enter. We had a juried art art critics that juried the show. And there were 80 of them that were selected and hang in the Mind Institute. Now, this one's my favorite. It's called The Haircut. You can feel how this little boy is feeling about getting a haircut. You see the guy up there with the scissors. And you see that B, which is probably the buzz of a razor. And this boy who I still see now, and he's 28. Um, but he, when he did this, he was about four. Um, he, his mom said that he always drew an uncomfortable situation. And then he drew a way to get out of it, a way that he could escape. And you can see his door here that shows his escape, his way out. I hope that as we think about healthy development or disordered development, either one, that we begin to think about how we make the body resilient, that we think about the whole body as we're doing that, and that that kind of a philosophy can give us an escape, not only from these stressful times, but also from the stresses that we might put on our body from gene environment interactions and how to help make people be healthier. So that's my last slide, and I'm open to thanks so much, Dr. Hendren. Thanks so much. Um, I, I really appreciate you your your breadth of research experience and the depth of the work that you've done in this. This I know it's not easy to do an overview of, of such a large amount of material in a short period of time, um, and. It's it's interesting for me to think about um, each of the th the topics you've been discussing about this, as they influence that notion of the terroir and the uh, how they influence um, how we're able to experience our lives. Um, you, you wrote it as symptoms, and of course it does present as the things that we identify as symptoms, but it also influences the way that we just experience the world. Um, I'm wondering, given the this, I mean, we've had some conversations about this off and on about how do you translate the the difficulty of interpreting um, research data from RCTs that are of lower quality or don't give us these grades that that allow the professional bodies to be able to enthusiastically endorse a treatment 
when you have such a wide range of things that potentially could be helpful, but also many of them end up in the, in the category that you showed of like, well, it just didn't pan out. Um, I'm, I'm wondering how you end up counseling families in these middle range areas. So um, let's take a real world example of, uh, of currently where a lot of these kids can't be in the school setting and the parents are at home with them more and they're dealing with more intrusive or difficult um, um, externalizing behaviors and now they wanna try anything they can. Um, what, yeah, what kind of thoughts do you have about how to support that when you don't have the grade A evidence? I'd like to um, uh, kind of engage parents in a dialogue that we can go back and forth and review the literature together. And so we talk about uh, doing a PubMed search or talk about several other articles and um, uh, review things that you could read that evidence and then make a decision about what's right. I find some family members are willing to try almost anything that they, that they think is not just really dangerous that might help their child. And other family members say, I'm really pretty hesitant to, to try these things that doesn't quite fit for me. I'd rather wait until there were trials that came out. I remember meeting a, a, a dad of a young girl who had autism, um, and he's a, a neurologist, a really well-trained neurologist at, from Hopkins, and he was practicing someplace else, and he brought his daughter to see us, and I said, was going through, what have you tried? And he was saying, well, I said, have you tried chelation? And he said, yes. And I said, oh, my gosh, I don't believe you tried chelation because, you know, people worry that if you don't use the right chelator, somebody could die and, you know, those kinds of things. And he said, you know, Bob, my little girl has autism and I'm not going to stop at anything until I feel like I've tried what could ever, what could help her do better. Um, he was obviously educated and had a way of deciding what he was going to use and not use. But I hope that the people that I work with as we think about all of these potential treatments and what has good evidence and what doesn't, that I can help them think that way in making good decisions. And so, so what I hear in, in that um, is, you know, a real interest and willingness to uh, to approach the problems from the the perspective of the parents and the ways in which will help them um, really feel like they're doing the best they can for for the kid in the, the way that they want to. Um, there's a, a really interesting question from uh, from our uh, participants here is has the pandemic by virtue of such a huge number of people experiencing varying levels of increased isolation, so more people isolated, offered any researchers any opportunities to glean data during these bizarre times. Anybody researching specific effects from isolation or other aspects in this population? Yeah, there are several good studies going on now looking at those effects and, and, are, and some have been published already. Uh, if we're talking just about the population in general, I think 
we know the suicide rate uh, has been going up. The emergency room visits have been going up. Eating disorders have been going up. Um, just in the patients that I see who largely have either ADHD or autism or both, and it might be the ADHD with dyslexia or other things, I just find they're feeling really, really stressed. Um, uh, the sheltering and how long this has gone on and, and people that I haven't seen for years are coming back saying things aren't going so well anymore. I think it's been really hard. For some reason, there's been a shift in the last week or two, and I don't know if it's spring coming or if it's um, the vaccines giving hope or the governor of Texas saying we don't have to wear masks anymore or something that um, I think people seem to be a little brighter. But I think if we have another slide, I think it's going to be just so hard on people because it has been hard. Yeah, no doubt another slide would really tax our our um, our, our systems of resilience. Yeah. Um, Andrean, speaking of that, um, I loved your example of Gavin Newsom. Oh, yeah. Um, and his issues with dyslexia, and he was it's he struck me as this great example of the other components of resilience that people can pull on. And clearly for him, there was a capacity for confidence to be able to, to say, I'm going to find another way around this. Um, and there's, there's other aspects are, are that, that feed into capacities of resilience. I wonder what you might have noticed in the families you work with or the kids that you've seen that strike you as like other components in ways that they cope or that they have tapped into that, that, that foster that resilience? That's a good question. I think that um, the way, so for dyslexia, there's a way that um, people talk about how people with dyslexia are good at making long connections, but not good at making short connections. And that people with autism are good at making short connections and not good at making long connections. And when the, there was a survey of uh, entrepreneurs and over, I think it was almost 40% of them had dyslexia. There was this sense that maybe dis, you, you find this dyslexic advantage of being, uh, of, of, your brain works in a little different way and you, and it's not just that you're solving uh, a problem that you can't read and you don't want to be made fun of. And although that's part of it is that you um, you're resourceful, but there may be something different in the way that someone with dyslexia's brain works. And I think there are people too, like with autism who are really good at detail and they, have, they find themselves in jobs where they have to do lots of detail work, and that uh, works very well for them. They like it, and they do that job well. And I think we all find that, whether there are disorders that seem to be that, that clear. But it's um, what I hope we are getting better at in medicine and trying to not just look for the things that don't work, but try to 
find the things that do so that we can strengthen them. I guess it's a little like you think about people who have cardiac surgery um, and you're doing a bypass around something that isn't working that well and you put in new uh, a new flow to things. Um, I, I do think that, that um, finding those strengths that you have from what you've, what you've got, uh, as well as the vulnerabilities is important. There's a framework you're reminding me of. Um, my friend and colleague, um, Dr. Lawrence Sugarman, who's a developmental pediatrician in Rochester, New York, who um, years ago, in, this is mostly in teaching and, and clinical hypnosis settings. He and I teach um, this approach for, for practitioners. Has encouraged people, and this may not be his, to to think of these kids as kids with disabilities, not disabilities. They're kids with different abilities, and when we focus so much on the things that aren't working, the things that get in the way, we're viewing things from a structural system that says that's a problem, and the focus is fix that problem. It's not that it isn't a problem, but it lacks the the attention to the things that that actually differently able in in other settings and other ways that provide other aspects of resilience, perhaps, that are um, positive reframing, that are looking at the kinds of components that, that um, kids who don't have the capacity to engage in life the way that others do have wonderful capacities to engage in life in sometimes ways we can't imagine. Yeah, and I th- the the people that I find do the best with all of these um, challenges, even like the pandemic challenges, but also, um, you know, having certain things that don't work perfectly and have a way of trying to find the the strength in it, the, to frame it in a certain way to do that. And I find some parents that have kids with disabilities you know, can take such joy out of certain parts of that, you know, and see this, the strength in it. I, I do think that's an important part of resilience, of being able to reframe things. It's not always easy to find that when, when things get stressful, but yes. Um, another question just came through. Um, it's an interesting point. The comment is, I've had a couple of friends who self-describe as introverts actually mentioned that they're in no hurry to return to normal social interactions and even things like the side effect of covering your face in public and how that actually puts some folks at greater ease. Can this, um, quote, mass social sabbatical end up being good for society? It's a great question. And uh, I certainly have seen this a lot. The, the, the kind of way of framing this and the way I've seen it is that kids are individuals who tend to be more extroverted, who feed off of social environments are really struggling in, in this isolation of the pandemic. But, kid, but individuals who tend to be introverts um, can actually thrive and do quite well. And um, I don't know how much that this will end up being good for society other than helping us inform that we have different ways of relating in the and um, perhaps helping people understand themselves better in terms of how they take care of themselves when we're past this. Do you have any other thoughts yeah. on that? Well, I, you know, I, I do find uh, some 
kids are doing better, um, their anxiety is less, their academic performance is better, they feel better um, during these times, and they're not necessarily eager to return to school where they might get teased or um, a whole bunch of things happen, especially if they're not adept at doing them. Uh, though I worry at times that there is a certain amount of socialization that we need to learn how to do. And I find some people have retreated into just video games in their bedroom now. And I think it's going to be really hard to get them out of there. And especially as they get past high school, they kind of fall off a cliff and they, they don't get out. So finding ways that we can do things, although I do find that a lot of these people still like doing um, social media. They, they get to groups and they chat and they have friends. And so that part's good, except it still keeps them inside and not uh, yeah. doing things outside. Yeah. Um, you, I, I'm going to take that answer as a as a prompt to to let those of you who are still with us know that in in future talks one one of we're going to have a variety of different talks coming up one is going to be with dr bridget walker who's a clinical psychologist in the community who specializes in exposure response prevention as a form of behavioral or cognitive behavioral therapy for anxiety disorders and um, she's going to talk very much about that issue of of um, how when we fall into a pattern of avoiding things that provoke the anxiety. It can lead to digging a deeper hole that's harder to get out of. Um, and that the, the, the need to, um, there's a balance there taking advantage of a situation where you don't have to be in, in the socially stressful settings, but the, but the fact that that could make it much harder to return to it later is, is problematic. Um, so unless we have any other questions, I think we could wrap up. Uh, we could focus just another moment or two. I just want to thank you one more time, Dr. Hendren. I really appreciate you taking the time to share. Thanks for including me. I appreciate uh, Corey Silver's questions uh, that I see on the and. Um, um, and it was nice to have this chance to be part of the Osher Center. So thanks. Thanks so much, Bob. Okay. Bye. Take care, everyone. Bye. We're to seeing you in a week. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.